0: Richard Feidler is, uh, is best known these days for his Conversations with Richard Feidler on ABC Radio. Conversations is the most podcast program on the ABC with 1.8 million podcasts downloaded a month. Mm. Thank you. Which, by any standards, is a lot of podcasts. But Richard had an earlier career before he morphed into Australia's best interviewer. He started out in the trio the Doug Anthony All-Stars in the 80s playing guitar. Thank you. In the ensemble with uh, Paul McDermott and Tim Ferguson, all three of them have gone on to be significant figures in Australian cultural life. But at the time, DAS was an iconoclastic group who tore into and apart every taboo they stumbled across during the 80s and the early 90s. And I think it's fair to say they bumped into a fair few. DAS was at the start better known overseas than it was in Australia, at least until they joined up with the comedy show, The Big Gig. The British comedian Al Murray said of seeing the group at Edinburgh festival in 1988, they came on stage with the attitude of feral (coughs) invaders. (laughs) They were an insanely hot act who sang, cursed, sweated and insulted each other and their audiences with a level of commitment and polish that seemed (laughs) exotically charged and almost transgressive. (laughs) Hard to imagine when you see the demure Mr. Fidler sitting next to me on the (laughs) stage here. He has morphed once again now into a historian. In 2014, he went to Istanbul with his son, Joe, and on his return, sat down to write an account of their travels while seeking out the location of many of the crucial moments in Byzantine history. Richard says of himself that the label is not appropriate. He's more of a history enthusiast than an historian. But you'd be hard pressed, I think, once you've read Ghost Empire to argue that point, for this is a history begging to be told, a history that picks you up and engages you on so many levels Demanding a rethink of how we view our past, and really, there's little else that you can ask from a history book. Please welcome Richard Feidler to Milan. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Stephen.
0: So, uh, Richard, I wonder if we might start with you rather than Byzantium. We, sure. we, we could sail there gently, possibly.
1: Okay, let's sail there gently indeed.
0: I was thinking you can see that in that question I asked Kari about fathers and sons and the way the dynamic has changed over the last couple of generations. How was it with your father? Did he, did he ever take you on a journey like this?
1: Not often, but not um, not physically. So my my dad was very charismatic, movie star handsome. He was often likened to Errol Flynn. He was extremely charming, a beautiful storyteller, famously so. He was the kind of one of the group of friends who would often be asked, "I'll oh, tell that story. Please tell that story," because he was a wonderful raconteur. And that's I remember growing up enjoying watching my dad do that. He was a lovely dad to me, he um, always took my boyish, enthusiastic questions seriously, he engaged me on a whole lot of different things, particularly history and art and a lot of other things besides. He was terrific like that. He was a complicated man, he often had very long depressive episodes where he just wouldn't talk to anyone for weeks at a time. His, his business career went up and down, up and down, uh, but he was nonetheless, despite all that, um, a very very loving father. And. And a model for my own approach to my own son, when my own son came to me with a whole lot of really fierce questions, furious questions about history and how he came to be, how we all land in this point in time. I think, I think without history, all of us are orphans. And this was part of the appeal of it for me, and it is for my son as well. You want to know where your tiny life fits in, into the great stream of events and people, how the world came to be before you arrived in this world. I was like that with my dad and my son's like that with me.
0: And um, was he, I mean, I was curious about you joining the Doug Anthony All-Stars and I was wondering whether that, concurred with his political beliefs?
1: It certainly did, in, in some ways, insofar as he was a failed act a thwarted actor, never quite found the bottle to to bring himself forward. He had a horrible childhood. Um, his mother died when he was three. His father was a damaged World War One veteran um, who, after Dad's mother died, uh, just, just just neglected him. And Dad was picked up... At three o'clock in the morning at one point walking around as, an, as a three-year-old around the streets of St Kilda by Catholic Social Services. And he was brought up in, in Gippsland by uh, a stern aunt. Um, yeah, a loveless childhood and his father was a terrible example. His father was horrible to him. I only met him once on his deathbed. He was a horrible, a broken man, I suppose, and <clears throat> much can be forgiven under those circumstances. But it was just awful to my old man. I used to tell him, oh, he's useless and stupid and would be a failure, all those sorts of things. And Dad, the thing I'm always grateful to my own dad about was that he, he you know, these, these cycles tend to repeat themselves. These, these kind of cruelties are visited from one generation onto another. You know, like the, yeah. like the man's, you know, they deepen like a coastal shelf. You know, it's in like the lichen poem. But Dad put an end to that. He was, he, he wasn't like that. He had to figure out how to be a father, all on his own, and let love guide him. And he was a wonderful father for all of that.
0: That's and that was growing up in Melbourne.
1: wasn't Yeah, it? that was in Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide. Yeah, I lived up. All, I've grown up all over the place.
0: And w- when I was saying before that I I said that Australia's best interview, I, it was really not hyperbole. Or certainly not certainly not on my part. But I was I was thinking about uh, your role in Doug Anthony All Stars, which in many ways you were kind of like the dormouse at the Mad Hatter's tea party mm. to Tim Ferguson and Paul McDermott. That's a pretty they good were, analogy. Yeah, they were they, they, they were pouring tea on you quite often, mm-hmm. and and uh, I wondered if. It, actually, we were kind of seeing an early part of this interviewer, you you were prepared to play the kind of straight man, the listener, to their craziness in some way.
1: Perhaps so. Um, I, I really find it hard to draw a line between what I did then and what I do now, only insofar as I've always been... Um a curious person, <laughs> not as in peculiar, I hope, but as in curious. Just wanting oh, okay. to try things and invent things and, and, and go to these places and and being a part of that group was a way of not only doing music but also comedy and visual art, uh, a whole lot of different things that and, and performance and play with a whole bunch of ideas in a in a kind of holistic way that wouldn't just be one thing, it could be a multiplicity of things. And with that way we could attack on several different fronts. So as a cultural project, that always really interests me. And so what I do now is, is, a, is I suppose, a, a, a publicly funded forum by which I can play out my many, many interests and curiosities, so I can sort of treat this as an ongoing uni degree where I get paid and don't get a hex debt, essentially. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's not, but it's not quite as simple as that. Clearly in order to get the people who you're talking to to talk in the way that they are, there is a, there's an art involved in this.
1: Yes, there is. There's a great deal of research that goes into every interview I do. Um, And as I can see, actually, you're doing a really may I say, you're doing a wonderful job because clearly you've done a lot of reading and a lot of preparation before this. That's the real art of it. And quite frankly, Stephen, this being interviewed thing's a lark. It's it's an absolute piece of piss (laughs) compared to actually preparing for an interview. And you talk for 5% of the time, and uh, all the work that goes into that, because you really need to over-prepare f- if you're going to do an interview properly. Um, a couple of times I've had other interviewers say, nah, I just wing it, you know, it's, it's more natural and you let things, just you go wherever the flow takes you, really. Well that might work, that sometimes works, that sometimes can work. One, two times out of three if you're lucky, and then that third time, it'll just be the dullest. It'll be like a car crash, except intensely boring at the same time. Uh, I've just seen so many bad interviews. Uh, so intense preparation, an idea of narrative and following some person's story. A large part of the time I just like to shut up and let my guests talk. I don't see my interviews as, as that, you know, one man meets another man, this battle of wills, this titanic battle of two humans meeting, talking about stuff that's important, and there'll be a resolution at the end. No, 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 no. no. No, no, I prefer, I'm not that arrogant to think I've got that much to say that that's that's that interesting every single day. I'd rather let the guests talk and give them the space and kind of give them the space and opportunity to tell their story and ultimately to be their best self.
0: Yeah, but it is partly a point of actually letting them, you can't go into an interview like that with a set agenda, you have to have questions, but ideally you don't have to ask them.
1: No, I have to meet them on their own terms, I think. And that's why the kind of person I invite on the show is very important, I think. I don't like activists. It's very rare I'll have an activist. Um, I'm sorry, it's just the truth. Activists are (laughs) bores most of the time. Have you ever been stuck in a dinner table with an activist? You're trying to talk with your friends. They're banging on the table and telling you why you need to care about this thing. Oh, please. I mean, there's plenty of that. Yet, there's plenty of room for activists in radio with a 10-minute interview, but for an hour? Really? Um, and and there's and something about that that really annoys... A couple of times, activists have slipped through, <laughs> and I go, you bastard. <laughs> because they're just, they're just abusing the forum for for this really narrow view of the world. And I'm all about a nuanced, complex, rich view of the world, which is really the way most of us live our lives. I mean, we have a lot of things we really care about, and I do want to hear people talk about the things they really do truly care about. but. People who approach me say, "I really think it's. I want to come on your show because it's important we get the message out that dot dot dot." That's uh, no, no, thank you. Not on my show, no.
0: And 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 clearly it works. Yes, yeah, that's but, right. But, it's not like
1: all these awareness weeks, like you know, <laughs> renal health awareness week. I want to come on your show and make people get the message out about the importance to keep your kidneys in good shape. Well, five minutes maybe, but not an hour. I think. So look, let's move over
2: to
0: Ghost Empire, because they've got so much to talk about here in this book, which which I think is fantastic. And and I would like to get, in fact, actually, you were going to read a a, a quick one minute passage just to kind of interest, to, to demonstrate a little bit about us. Can I just say, Ghost Empire, for those of you who haven't read it or don't know anything about it at the moment, it charts the history of Constantinople from its foundation in 323 to its fall in 1453 which is the real and final end of the Roman Empire, yeah?
1: Indeed, and just by a bit more way of preface to this, this is a kind of forgotten civilization in the West in any case. We, most of us grow up with the idea that the Roman Empire ended in the fifth century when the last Western Emperor, who was a boy called Romulus Augustulus, was sent on his way by a German chieftain out of Italy, and that was the end of the Roman Empire, but it's not true. The Roman Empire in the East, based in Constantinople, a much bigger city, went rolling on for another 1,000 years after this. Another 1,000 years, and the lifespan of this is an awesome thing. It touches the ancient world at one end and the beginnings of the Renaissance at the other. This empire was based in Constantinople. Nowadays, we, we call it Byzantium, or the Byzantine Empire, but that's a handle attached to it by historians after the event. They called themselves Romans, and they were proud to trace their connections to their ancient forebears. They were Christians, they spoke Greek, but the use of Latin evaporated, paganism disappeared, but they were proud to see the connections to the ancient Roman Empire. And this is the thing, we call this period the Dark Ages, but it wasn't the Dark Ages in this part of the world at all. The period we call the Dark Ages was certainly a dark age in Western Europe, where people forgot to read and forgot to bathe, but... (laughs) In this, in this period of the Dark Ages, in Byzantium and Persia and Arabia and India and China, this is a period of great flourishing of technology and science and conquest and trade. And there's a sense where the pulse quickens in this, in this era. And in this way, you can sort of see Constantinople, not so much as this easternmost city in Europe, but the kind of westernmost outpost of this flourishing network of civilizations and trading posts throughout the Middle Ages. And at this time, Constantinople was by far the biggest city in Western Europe. So I've just begun my book, chapter one, with a a portrait of Constantinople a thousand years ago, what this city was like. It's called Radiant City. A thousand years ago, Constantinople was the greatest and richest city in Europe. It dwarfed its rivals in size, splendour and sophistication. The city contained half a million souls, more than 10 times the population of London or Paris. At a time when Western Europe was ensnared in a dark age of poverty and illiteracy, the people of Constantinople enjoyed the pleasures of the metropolis. They bought exotic goods in the marketplaces of the city's great marbled squares and cheered for their teams at the Hippodrome, the world's biggest stadium. Students attended universities and law academies. There were schools for female education and hospitals with women doctors. The city's libraries conserved precious manuscripts by Greek and Latin authors, ancient works of philosophy, mathematics, and literature that had been lost or destroyed elsewhere. Constantinople was the greatest wonder of its age. It was an imperial capital, an emporium, a shrine and a fortress. Venetian merchants, arriving after a long sea voyage, would see the gold and copper domes of the skyline appear out of the bosphorus fog like a hallucination. First-time visitors were stunned by the monumental scale and beauty of the city. They reacted like European peasants arriving by boat into Manhattan, not quite believing the impossible metropolis looming up in front of them. Traders came to Constantinople from all over Europe, from Asia and Africa. Russian galleys cruised down from the Black Sea, laden with fish and honey and beeswax and caviar. Amber was brought from the shores of the Baltic Sea to be exchanged for gold or silk. Spices from China and India were carried overland into the city and sold on to Western Europe. Constantinople was a holy city, its majestic churches and monasteries housed the most important sacred relics of Christendom, the crown of thorns, fragments of the true cross of Christ, the bones of the apostles, and a portrait of Christ believed to have been painted from life by Saint Luke himself. Pilgrims came to Constantinople by the old Roman road down through Thrace. Passing through the Carisian Gate and the land walls, The pilgrim would push his way through the crowds on the Mesa, the city's broad Central Avenue, passing shops and colonnaded squares paved with marble and tenement blocks. Beggars and prostitutes would loiter in doorways while a holy fool, smeared with grime and filth, displayed the scars of his mortification to jeering children. The crowds on the Mesa would part for a procession of chanting priests parading a wooden icon followed by a train of ecstatic believers, hoping to catch a glimpse of the icon, weeping miraculous tears, or dripping blood. The emperor's procession among his people would bring city traffic to a standstill. Heralds with dragon banners would appear, strewing flowers on the path ahead, followed by an entourage of imperial guardsmen, clerics, and ministers. The voices of a choir would then lift up and sing, Behold, the morning star, in his eyes the rays of the sun are reflected. Finally, the emperor would appear, swathed in crimson and gold silk, his feet clad in the distinctive thigh-high purple boots reserved for the occupant of the throne. Thank you.
0: Love those, love those purple boots. But, yes. Um, uh, moving along just past them for a second, what, what on earth got into your head to decide to write a book about 1,000 years of, um, or 1,200 years of history?
1: Well, like I said, my son, Joe, um, ever since he could pretty much talk was pestering me with questions about history. Um, how he came to be in, in this world and, and by the age of 10 he was asking me about uh, Nazi Germany, Stalinism, by 11 we were on to the Russo-Japanese War, by the age of 12 Napoleon, the Vietnam conflict, uh, then the industrial revolution and, I, and you know my reading load is heavy enough and, <laughs> and I'm having to read more to answer my son's bloody questions. Um, and so we went on this history kick, and uh, Roman history, ancient Roman history was something I always wanted to revisit. I had a bit of it, but not much of it, and we went on this Roman history kick together, and getting to the end of Western Roman history, ancient Roman history, we went on into the medieval Roman world, the later Eastern Roman Empire, which took us into Byzantium. And when he turned 14, I sort of planned this trip to Rome and Istanbul as this coming-of-age adventure because, you know, I'm from this Anglo-Irish background. Now, Kauri with his fabulous Icelandic background, I mean, I know that all kinds of of coming-of-age, they they eat fermented shark or weird shit like that, I don't know. That's what they do, but we have these, we don't have this in Anglo-Irish culture. And so I thought we'd go on this history trip together. Now we live in Brisbane where, as you know, there's nothing in the built environment that's older than six months.
0: Well, if there is, we knock it down.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right, because it's an offence. It's, it's an eyesore. And so Joe was really longing to be in a part of the world where the built environment was ancient or medieval. So we went to Rome, and then we went to Istanbul, which is now the name we have for what was Constantinople, the great city of the Rome, Eastern Roman Empire. And the idea was we'd spend time here, and I'd tell him stories while we were there of this fabulous civilization that the world's forgotten.
0: And, OK, that came to an end very quickly. Sorry.
1: <laughs> i keep talking. Um, yeah. So part, part of the thing was to sort of, I suppose the object of the exercise was to immerse ourselves imaginatively in that world, what it was like for people living in that city, in that time I'm describing there, through its, its glorious rise and its awful, its absolutely terrible end, which is so catastrophic and tragic, it, it's, it's, it's quite a stunning and terribly moving story. So, I just wanted us to inhabit that mindset. One of the things I find when I interview historians is that, is that they're in it for the time travel. A lot of them won't admit this because it makes them sound unscholarly, but that's why they do it. Of course, that's why they do it. Why else? That's the thrill of it to inhabit the mind space of people living in a different part of the world with a different concept of how the world works a thousand years ago. It's the people in that time I'm talking about here in Constantinople, this was the capital of the Roman Empire, and it had all the gravitas that was attached to that name. So they believed they were living in the capital of the world, and they were actors, central actors in this cosmic drama that affected the fate of the universe, and they believed that when the city fell, and they had a, a, a literature, of apocalypse, literature of apocalypse to this end, that when the, one day when the city would fall. That would be the end of the universe. That would be the end of time and would signal the apocalypse and the coming of the Antichrist and the second coming of Christ.
0: One of the things that you're saying in the introduction is that uh, you, as a child, you had heard a lot of these stories, you said, uh, and you wanted to share that with Joe. You wanted to give him those stories. Yes. But I was curious because I didn't know any of these stories. Reading this book, I hadn't heard half the stories, two-thirds of the stories that were in there. And I wondered, how had you were you reading something about Byzantium in, as, a, as a young man that I must have glossed over, I must have missed?
1: I, I, I didn't know much about it at all until... In my 20s, I bought John Julius Norwich's three-volume uh, History of Byzantium, which was a fabulous introduction to it, I think.
0: Is that... Is that and, sorry, I, I'm not familiar with that work. Is that a fictional work? No, or? no, it's
1: a, it's a history. It's a three-volume popular history. Uh, and he wrote it... I think the first one came out in the early 90s and it, it, it subsequently became a three-volume uh, history, which I think is now condensed into a, into a single volume now, which is, which is a wonderful read. And then I put it to one side and returned to it when we followed this trajectory of Roman history. But the real pleasure of writing this was delving into the primary sources, reading the actual contemporary accounts of people arriving in the city, encountering it. One of my favourite accounts I read was the story of an Italian named Liutprand of Cremona, and Liutprand was the ambassador to the king of Italy, Berengar of Italy, and he was sent on a diplomatic mission to meet the emperor. He's, he arrived in a Venetian galley in the Golden Horn, the city's spectacularly beautiful harbour, got out, walked, was taken up the hill to the great palace of the Caesars, which lay on the edge of the water, spectacularly beautiful and elaborate palace. And, of course, Liutprand had never seen a city this size in his life. He came from these little Italian towns and seen this great metropolis. He was taken into the antechamber, he said. He wrote this all down. And finally, it was time to meet the emperor. At this point, two two eunuchs came into the antechamber, hoisted him up on their shoulders, and carried him into the emperor's octagonal throne room. Now, he writes at this point, he saw something extraordinary. And the existence of this thing is corroborated in other accounts. The first thing he saw, he said, going into the throne room was a gilded mechanical tree, a golden tree, and on the arms of this golden tree were mechanical clockwork birds, each one emitting birdsong according to its own species. Now, this this was baffling and astonishing for him. Then he was carried to the emperor's throne, and there on the throne sat the emperor, the ruler of the world, as he presented himself, Constantine Porphyrogenitus, Constantine born to the purple, who sat there in this robe, this beautiful, glorious, brocaded robe, encrusted with jewels and pearls. On either side of the throne, he said, were two gilded mechanical lions whose mouths opened and shut mechanically while roaring and whose tails mechanically banged up and down on the floor. He did what was expected of him, which was to prostrate himself three times in front of the emperor. He got down on his knees with once. Twice, three times, and he said, when he brought his head up, the emperor was gone. The throne had shot up 30 feet into the air, (coughs) and the emperor had changed his robe. This is what Constantinople did to people. People would go into the Hagia Sophia, the most beautiful building in the world, the most holy building in the world, be overwhelmed by the beauty and sacredness of this, and then meet the emperor with these mechanical parlour tricks, and the effect it had on people was just to overwhelm them and, and, to, and to flood them with wonder and a sense of holiness so that they were left in no doubt that this was the greatest city in the world and that God was with these people and with the emperor.
0: And in fact, if I remember rightly, the, the kind of the code of that story is that the ambassador didn't get what he wanted at all. Because... No, in
1: the end, he didn't. No, he, he was invited to dine with the emperor afterwards in, in the Palace of the 19 Couches where emperors would eat like the ancient Romans did, not at tables, but reclining on couches, and mechanical golden trays, he said, were lowered from the ceiling, like on some kind of a winch device, and he loved Constantine Perforogenitus. He was a a scholar, the emperor, and so they they got on famously well. He came back again about 10 years later to meet the new emperor, Nicephorus, and this guy was a total bogan. The new emperor was a total bogan and a blunt warrior and a total asshole. and and he had a miserable time, was served a roasted goat covered in garum, which was this sauce that the Byzantines loved, which was a lot like Vietnamese fish sauce. So this pungent, fishy sauce, which to a Western European who just... Strictly had to have his food boiled, and that was about it. It was just repugnance. And he served him wine which was flavoured with pine resin, which sounds a lot like cena that you get in Greek restaurants. They went, well, I, can't, I can't eat this. I can't drink this. The emperor's a pig. Uh, I can't wait to go home. Yeah. What, one of the,
0: the chapters in the book is entitled The Deep State. Yes. Which I thought was rather curious because... Um, A lot of conspiracy people in Australia kind of believe that there is a deep state. And in America, they believe there is a kind of deep state that is influencing things that happen. To me, I I tend to think that it's kind of more uh, affinities between multinationals who happen to kind of get along together but in, in Byzantium or in Constantinople, there actually was a deep state, as we understand it, wasn't there? There was a kind of secret society that had been handed down from generations. Is, is that, that seemed to be what you were saying in there.
1: Not really. I think I was trying to make the point that um, complex political intrigues have been going on in Turkey for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In modern-day Turkey, they, it's a common turn of phrase, the deep state. It refers to the setup that was put in place by Atatürk when he set up the modern Turkish Republic. He entrusted the army with the role of keeping the state secular. And to that degree, there was a kind of unit within the Turkish military which conducted covert assassinations of uh, Islamic fundamentalist preachers, Christian missionaries, and other enemies of the secular Turkish state as it was seen at the time. In the Cold War period, the CIA, because it was a NATO state, the CIA helped set up a unit within that military within another... It's like wheels within wheels, to act as a left-behind unit in case there was a communist takeover of Turkey because there was always maybe on the cards, like with Greece, you never knew. So if there was a communist takeover, there would be an insurgency within the army ready to conduct counter counterinsurgency efforts. And at the end of the Cold War, these organisations found themselves with nothing to do some of them, elements have drifted off and to become members of far-right paramilitary groups like the Grey Wolves. Others have joined other parts. It's a very complex, and I completely agree with your characterisation, it's not a tightly woven conspiracy. It's more like a loose coalition of shady organisations and operatives and people that sometimes collaborate, sometimes work against each other. And the biggest threat to the deep state is Prime Minister, or now President, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. President Erdogan, and that is at war with the deep state. And the best way to understand the failed coup, I think, is in that context. This is his chance to stamp out the deep state once and for all, because he wants to uh, end the idea of a secular Turkey. Not to make it fundamentalist, this is a really important point. Modern day Turkey, uh, there's, a, there's a strong influence of conservative uh, Islam, and that is not at all the same thing as Islamism. Think of them as like national party conservative Christians, except Muslim, in the countryside. That's what it's like. And Erdogan's a lot like the Jobiaki-Peterson of Turkey. Like, he receives a lot of money from property development. And the, the economic disruption that causes creates a conservative backlash, and he benefits politically from the backlash he's helped create. That's, that's Erdogan, really. That's the best, best way it's seen. But there's, as you say, yes, there has always been plots and coups and counter-coups going on right throughout the history of Constantinople. And watching that failed coup take place... I was thinking of the time in in Justinian's period as emperor, where there was a failed coup against Justinian, and how he uh, led one of the most shocking crackdowns in the history of the world as a result.
0: What part of the story of this book is this constant turnover of emperors, Mm -hmm. and each one usurps the person that was there before, Blinds their forerunner. I mean, there's an awful lot of blinding going on in this book. I have to say. I mean, I, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether this is something you've concentrated on or whether the Constantinopolitan people were just into blinding. But there is an awful lot of bloody blinding going on here.
1: You know, it's the, like today's Tuesday. Let's gouge someone's eyes out, shall it, we? It is, it is yes. just.
0: It is just really every. I mean, when you're an emperor, you get you kind of set it up. You set up your your own uh, fiefdom around yourself, and then your stepson or your whoever it is, comes along, kicks you out, blinds you, throws you in the dungeon until somebody decides that they want you back out again and they kind of clean you up even though you're blind and put you yes, back again. Yes, that happens
1: again and again. And the reason for that is is, is centred around what kind of a person the emperor is supposed to be. Now, when Constantine the Great Christianized the Roman Empire and moved it to Constantinople, he had to rethink of who the emperor was going to be because emperors, Roman emperors up until that point had been semi-divine figures, like with god-like powers. Um, but that wasn't working anymore. And to, when Christianizing the empire, Christian theology absolutely forbids any mortal to call themselves a god or a demigod. So Constantine had to figure out, well, where does the emperor fit in the picture? How does Christian... Christian ideology buttressed the whole idea of running a Roman superpower. Well, the Emperor's not a god, but the Emperor is the number one citizen on earth. The Emperor leads the 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 people of the world and his empire and is almost indirect, he's the pivotal point that connecting heaven and earth. So divine energy flows down from God and heaven and the saints and the angels and is sort of funneled down into the person of the emperor. So the emperor is not divine, but has a kind of holy legitimacy to him. So if you murder the emperor, if you kill the emperor, you risk having murdered the chosen person of God, and there's all sorts of perils involved in it. And this is truly believed by the people at the time. However, if you disfigure that person, that's bad, but it's not the same thing as murdering. And you it's sort of like it's like killing Christ on the cross all over again if you do that to the emperor. So if you cut the nose off or gouge the eyes out, if they survive, they survive. If they don't, they don't. That's, that's how it works. But you, you, haven't, you haven't committed regicide. That's the important thing. I'm, it I'm sounds sorry, like I'm, a I'm fine just... distinction, I know, but, but you, you think the other countries had this. Like in Prague, it was they had a way of getting around this, they called it defenestration. I think it's a bloody marvelous idea. We ought to do this with our prime ministers. If, 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 the, if the king fails to deliver, you get a group of people together, you go into the palace and you throw them out the window. And if they survive, well, God intended them to survive and to remain as king, but they've learnt their lesson. They're going to pay more attention from now on. If they don't, well, that's God's idea. God wanted that, didn't he? Who's ready to defenestrate the Prime Minister right now? Let's get a, let's, get a, let's march on <laughs> yes, camera. Yes, yes,
0: yes. Well, we won't get a a radical a, thought, but insating, it's not put that in the podcast, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, one of the things is that it, this is about the Dark Ages, this whole thing, what we refer mm-hmm. to, you, you said this in your introduction about the book, is that the idea is that history kind of gets up to the fall of Rome in Western Rome in 410, and then it kind of starts up again in the Renaissance. And, there's, and you actually, towards the end of the book, you, you, you make some quite interesting quotes from a man called Lecky, William Lecky. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I, I've actually written down here because I thought they were so good about, about this period, who described it as, without exception it constituted the most thoroughly base and despicable form that civilization has yet assumed. A statement which might be justifiably determined uncompromising. Lecky goes on to write, the history of the empire is a monotonous story of the intrigues of priests, eunuchs and women, of poisonings, of conspiracies, of uniform
1: ungratitude.
0: Now, Quite apart from the obvious truth about the assessment of mm-hmm. almost all history, right, it seems to be particularly kind of true of Constantinople. In some
1: ways, um, there's two reasons for this. I think one is just out and out Western chauvinism. Um, much of these histories are written by uh, English gentlemen of the Enlightenment, um, and at, written at a time when Britain is either ascending to or at its peak of empire. And Britain at this point is very much sees itself as the new Rome. After the fall of Constantinople, every major power wants to be seen as the new Rome, but in Britain it felt self-evidently true because they, all the pink bits on the map amounted to quite a bit of the geography of the world. So then they see themselves as the rightful inheritors of ancient Rome. So to them, the later Roman Empire seems like some awful afterbirth. It seems like some vulgar, theocratic, superstitious, un-Roman thing. It do, it's, it's an empire that's run on diplomacy rather than huge amount of war. It's an emphasis that's run on culture rather than uh, one that celebrates the simple homespun manly virtues. That's what the ancient Romans were like. It was like, we fight, we're honourable, we're farmers, we win, we decide, we're, you know, we, we have law. And, and, the, and the English could definitely relate to that, but they looking over, the, looking over at Constantinople, the later Roman Empire, which was theocratic, it offended their ideas about the Enlightenment. It, and because they believed in diplomacy and often practiced a cunning form of diplomacy, that seemed to be vulgar to them. And that's one of the main, main reasons, but also there's this weird Western idea that civilization is always blown westward with the tide of history. Like civilization is born in Mesopotamia, you know, the Tigris and Euphrates and then it goes west to ancient egypt then it goes west to ancient greece to ancient rome to renaissance europe then it crosses over the atlantic ocean to the united states and travels all the way west to california where civilization dies now <laughs> this is the history we all grow up with this is what we're all taught in school uh, but of course it's nonsense like i say history is uh, civilizations are flourishing in the east in this in this period so i think this byzantium has been slandered really it's been properly slandered. The thing these, these uh, pompous asses don't ever ask themselves is if it was so effete, if it was so p- decrepit and pathetic and decadent and vice-ridden and ruled by, I love that phrase, uniform ingratitude, you know, <coughs> um, if, if that was the case, how did it last for 11 centuries? 11 centuries. And there's also a second, there's another final thing here. The reason why it came to an end It was finally overrun by the Ottoman Turks in 1453. But the event that wrecked the city, Constantinople, beyond repair, was in 1204, which was the sack of Constantinople by the Fourth Crusade, by Westerners, by Western knights from France and Italy, and by the Venetians. Uh, Writing this story is one of the most extraordinary tales in the whole of world history, the story of the Fourth Crusade. They set out to Christianize the Holy Land, and they never got there. They were, they were beguiled into plundering the greatest and richest city in the world for their own coarse and greedy means. It's such a story of low greed and treachery and hypocrisy it's, and, and horror. I felt like I needed to have a shower after writing that chapter on the book. And so there's a bit of bad faith there, I think, in the West as well. You know, um, I'm sure many people here have been to Venice. Been to Venice? Yes. You've been to see St. Mark's Basilica in St Mark's Place. You know those beautiful four horses, statue of four horses above the portico? Stolen from Constantinople. Stolen from the Hippodrome, in the sack of Constantinople in 1204. The statue of the four emperors, the tetrarchs, on the corner there, stolen from Constantinople. The marble pillars that hold up the portico, also stolen from Constantinople. Now, you have to ask yourself this about the Venetians. Why would you plaster your holy building, your holiest building with shit you've stolen from other people? <laughs> Why would you do that? What is that? It's a bit of like, yeah, it's up you, Constantinople, is it? Why do you do that? It's, it's like I'm, I can't quite look at St. Mark's the same way. I see it now as this kind of little magpie's nest of filthy plunder. Maybe I haven't persuaded you at that level, no, Steve. No, 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 I think,
0: I, I think you have. I was particularly taken by your comments about the Fourth Crusade, which, I, I mean, to go a little bit further, what you're saying is that they were tr- they were trying to get to the Holy Land, but they didn't have enough funds, so they were persuaded to sack Constantinople again, and they were in terrible trouble because they had sworn not to attack a Christian city, but somehow or other they managed to get some kind of little slippage in that they philosophical do. argument that allowed them. Allowed and them there was this Now there's this very interesting question here because once you've taken a city in the medieval world, you're allowed to sack it, but you're only allowed to sack it for 72 hours, mm. right? So the rape and pillage and destruction, only it has a limited period.
1: Mm-hmm. Three where did days. this?
0: Where did this rule? I mean, was this the sort of United Nations rule? You know, that, that. it is like
1: that. It was like a common conceit of the Middle Ages that if you know, if you if the city consents to be taken over, if you open your gates to the invader, then they're not allowed to do that. But if you resist and fight, then. After, if the siege is concluded successfully, the invaders have a moral right, it was commonly felt. There's not a law, but it's, a kind of a, it's um, an unwritten law, a, a, a non, an unwritten right to plunder the city for three days. Three days, and that's it. That's right. And, and the money they took, the gold, the rubies, the treasures they stole from Constantinople. The, the account written by a French knight called Geoffrey de Villehardouin writes there was enough plunder for, to fill three whole churches and they crowned one of their own as the new Latin emperor of Constantinople. And the, 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 this regime lasted 50 years, and they bankrupted the whole, whole empire. As he was being crowned, they plopped in his lap a ruby the size of an apple. That's the kind of wealth that was there in the city. And It took them 50 years, and they burnt through all of that money to the point where they were selling roof tiles off the great palace to make money. This was a shocking, terrible thing. It was, what happened, it was appalling. They were manipulated into it by the Doge of Venice. The, knights, the, 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 the crusade with the knights themselves were the younger brothers, not the, not the princes or the kings. They were the, kind of the younger brothers who were up for advantage. And they were, they were a bunch of thickos, really, most of them, I think, and they were easily manipulated by the Doge of Venice into plundering Constantinople. The thing is, the Doge led this invasion The doge was one of the first off the boats to land at the beach at the edge of the walls of Constantinople. And he did all this when he was 90 years old and totally blind. I know, it's it's like one of those things you have to go, well, that sounds like bullshit, and I have to check that. And it's incontrovertibly true. He was totally blind and 90 when he did all these things.
0: And one of the things about this book is your encyclopedic knowledge Of this period, which is really extraordinary, because as far as I can understand the chronology of this, you went to Istanbul in 2014. Yes. It's now 2016, so that's two years. In this time, you've managed to research and write a 453 page history of the Byzantine Empire that the Roman Empire in in the East As well as running conversations with Richard Feidler, travelling to Iceland with uh, Kari Gislason and doing a theatre piece, um, is there three Richard Feidlers? No, um,
1: I I blame that bastard Kari Gislason down the front, actually. (laughs) He's the one who persuaded me to go to Iceland and take three months long service leave and when we went there we had an amazing time and it was just it was, it was fabulous making that radio and I got sort of all head up and excited I was like yeah I'm gonna write a book yeah I'm gonna make a radio series and then then I had to do it all <laughs> as well and uh, so yeah we had such an amazing time it in, inspired me to, it, it sort of really fired me up so I'm able to work very hard yes.
0: But you must—I mean, had you done a lot of research into some research into Roman a, yeah. history before you started
1: this? Yes, to some degree, and that's that's why I went was so I could tell some of these stories to Joe while we were there. We could go into the Hagia Sophia, and I could explain to him why there was a flagstone in the floor, dedicated to that Doge of Venice that I mentioned, Henrico Dandalus. It's there in the Hagia Sophia today, in the upper gallery. And thanks to Carrie, I was able to explain to Joe why, in the upper balustrade of the Hagia Sophia, there are Viking runes carved in there that say, Halfdan wrote this, <laughs> written by a bored Viking uh, watching an interminable imperial ceremony take place below in the nave, um, because Vikings were recruited from, Scand- from Iceland, as far away as Iceland, uh, and Russia and the rest of Scandinavia to serve in the emperor's elite bodyguards, the Varangian Guard, these gigantic Vikings in Constantinople carrying double-headed axes, though their nickname was the emperor's wine bags because... They liked to have a pretty good time afterwards, although I can only assume no one called them that to their faces at the time. But uh, they, brought, and they, they brought these stories of Constantinople back to Iceland, and they're in the sagas of Iceland. So uh, Carrie was enormously helpful with all that as well.
0: Uh, they were very good at graffiti, because I've been to um, the Shetland Islands, uh, the Orkney Islands off Scotland, where in Mazehow there, the, the, there is the, the runes there, which is just graffiti. It says something like, Isabel is the best, is you know... Is the best in bed.
1: Yeah. <laughs> My favourite bit of ancient graffiti is in uh, Pompeii, where, excuse me, excuse, block your ears if, you can't, if you're troubled by vulgarity, but it says, I think I it, get the Latin right, it says, in one of the brothels there, it says, Hic messius fortuit nihil, which translates to, here messius fucked nothing. <laughs> the lovelorn cry of an ancient Roman going... <laughs> Poor Messias, eh? Spare a thought for him. Paid a penny
0: and only farted. That's we. right. Yes. yes. Um, we should go to some questions. So, but why don't you read oh, yeah. a little bit, just a, a final bit about Joe? Yeah. Because Joe was a lot of the inspiration for this.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, this the, the book. I should explain the book is interleaving with it's the father son journey as we go to these places like the Hagia Sophia. We spent a day walking the Theodosian Walls of Constantinople, which was thrilling and and melancholic and poignant and all those things. And uh, I've got a part here just about us being in Istanbul. Together, it's called Salep and Kaimak, and this sort of picks up after Joe and I have just been to the Blue Mosque, which is this beautiful mosque that faces the Hagia Sophia. It's covered in these beautiful blue tiles. Outside the mosque, Joe is intrigued by a cart selling something called Salep. I order two cups, and we're presented with a creamy hot drink. I hand a paper cup to Joe, who takes a long, slow sip. He closes his eyes and smiles, like he's just found something he was looking for. Right, he says emphatically. We're having salep every day while we're here. Now, salep is a gooey mixture of milk, rice flour, sugar and rose water, but the crucial ingredient is derived from the tubers of wild orchids, which are washed, boiled, dried and ground. The milky concoction is poured into a cup and garnished with cinnamon or crushed pistachios. Turkish people claim that salep is a medicinal drink, effective against all kinds of complaints, including bronchitis and heart disease. But Joe and I are happy to drink it for the sweet contentment it brings on a cold morning. That night we tell Yasin, the desk clerk at the hotel, how much we love Salep. Salep's no big deal, he says. The really great thing to have in Istanbul is Kaimak. Yasin scrawls a name on a post-it note. Pando Kaimak. The best Kaimak is here, he says quietly. The next day, Joe and I walk down to Eminönü to catch a ferry to the crowded inner-city suburb of Besiktas, on the European shore of the Bosphorus. Besiktas is a gentrified shopping precinct with kebab shops, shops, mobile phone outlets and burger joints. Joe and I find our way to the cobalt blue shopfront. This modest cafe is an institution in Istanbul, like Pellegrini's in Melbourne or Faselka in New York City, run-down but spick-and-span, informal but charismatic. The clientele is a mix of old-timers and young Turkish hipsters. Joe and I take a seat at a marble-topped table as an ancient man shuffles past tentatively carrying a plate of eggs. This is the proprietor, Pando, a man in his 90s with close-cropped hair and white whiskers. Pando and his wife, Dona, are some of the few remaining Greek Christians in Istanbul. Clustered on the walls are framed photos of Pando's proud ancestors, mustachioed men with burgundy fezzes perched on their heads. Pandos Cafe and Cream Shop was founded in 1895. He was born and raised in this cramped two-story building. As a boy in the 1920s, he met Ataturk, the hero of Gallipoli, the founder of modern Turkey, who came by and shook his hand. The cafe serves a delicious breakfast of fried eggs and sausages washed down with tea or Turkish coffee. But people mostly come here for the Kaimak, which I discover is a kind of clotted cream formed from buffalo milk. It's a traditional Turkish food originating from Central Asia. Donna comes to our table. She wears an apron over her black cardigan, and her gray hair is pulled back into a (coughs) bun. She bows her head with a degree of old-world formality and smiles at us, ready to take our order. I have no Turkish, so I grin apologetically, point at items on the menu, and say querulously, Kaimak? Turkish coffee? Dona smiles. Avec du sucre? She inquires. A little taken aback, I reply, um, yes, I mean, oui. She's speaking beautiful French to me, this lovely Greek grandmother in Istanbul. Vous êtes américain? She inquires politely. Non, madame, I stutter, summoning my schoolboy French. Nous venons de l'Australie. Ah, mon mari a un cousin à Melbourne. Oh, je suis né à Melbourne. She jots down our order. Alors, deux plates de caimac et café turc avec du sucre. Merci, madame. She smiles and withdraws. Joe is agog. We've been here all this time, he says, and you speak fluent Turkish? <laughs> The, I, you... I arch an eyebrow enigmatically. It's hard to impress a teenage son. <laughs> Thank you.
2: <laughs>
1: so now we take questions? Yeah. And Carrie and I... Okay. Have got
0: microphone? We've, got, we've got We've microphone? We've got one here in the, in the front here. Speaking
2: about the um, connection with Trey going, well, presumably both ways... Baltic to uh, Istanbul, and I presume, along the Volga or something like
0: that. And I, but I'm sure that were there any literary connections between did um, the sagas mention uh, travels to the to the Byzantium?
2: A lot of uh, a lot of people in, in the Middle Ages travelled, particularly on pilgrimage from Norway, Sweden, Denmark, even Iceland, uh, and the, their goal was to get to to Jerusalem. Uh, and a number of, uh, you know, warriors, Viking warriors, ended up in, in Istanbul. And their stories end up in the sagas. So there are connections. And, you know, as you were saying, Richard, I mean, you can only imagine what it must have seemed like to to Norse people to come into this city, this kind of golden city, you know, from the fjords in the north. So we have quite rich accounts of, of life in, 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 in Constantinople in the, in the Icelandic corpus. There's some of the best stories of Constantinople come from the Viking
1: the great uh, Icelandic sagas and the famous uh, the Heimskringler? Yeah, Himes Kringler, Himes Kringler, Kringler, yeah. The story of Harald Hardruder, the Harald the Hard Ruler, and his adventures have made it into my book as well, and Kari uh, was a big help for me on that as well. They, they, they called it, uh, Icelanders called Constantinople, Myrkligard, which means the big city, mm. big city. And it's thought that they, these returning Varangians would come back to Iceland and tell stories about this, beautiful, gigantic walled city with domes and spires, and it's this that creates the dream architecture of Asgard, the stories of uh, Norse heaven where Odin, the one-eyed king dwells, of the king of the gods dwells. Descriptions of Asgard are descriptions of Constantinople. So in this way, this city on this other, the whole other side of Europe forms part of the dream architecture of Vikings in this faraway land. By the same token, Constantinople was also known in China. So its reputation extended to Iceland in the far west and China in the far east, where it was known as the walled city of Fulin, where they believed people uh, got wool by growing sheep from a plant.
0: Do we have any other questions? I've got a question. There's one here. I'm fascinated by the culture of Iceland because I've read some massive (coughs) percentage of the people there aspire to be writers. Is that true?
2: Yeah, there's actually a saying in Iceland uh, Lappa me máganum. It means to walk around with a book in your stomach, uh, <laughs> and it describes this idea that Icelanders eventually get a tummy ache, uh, and that's when they know they have to write their biography. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I think uh, one in ten Icelanders will publish a book in their lifetime. One in ten. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And for both of uh, you. And they all. They. It's just as well they're heavy readers as well because the so there's only uh, 200,000 readers. So you know, uh, one in ten buys a, a copy. Uh.
0: I'd also like to know from both of you, what's your experience of the culture of Iceland,
2: a, a culture that has values writing and stories so much? What's mm. your experience of the culture as a result of that? Yeah, well, I've come, I guess, uh, I mean, I, I was brought up a little bit in that culture. Um, and for me, uh, I had a very strong sense as a child that you, you valued storytelling. And I'm sure that's something that the world shares. Perhaps the difference in Iceland is that because it's such a small community, um, everybody uh, cares about each other's quite small stories, you know, quite, quite domestic and private stories. And you, you feel that not just in literature, but in, in the way people talk in cafes, and particularly perhaps in the hot pots. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the, the main sport in Iceland is, is outdoor swimming. Uh, and that's because there, there is this, this source of geothermally geotherm- warm water And so it's very common in Iceland to spend, you know, an hour a day in a hot pot uh, at the local swimming pool and of course that's where you hear everything you need to hear. Uh, you know, uh, everything that isn't in the newspaper. Uh, but I mean, what were your impressions? Of well, the... um, when Carrie and
1: I first became friends, Carrie and I became friends after he came on the, the program. And uh, it's a fun way for a friend to introduce himself to you. It's like, here's my autobiography, read that, and then we'll become friends. But that's, that's not quite how we planned it, but it's what happened, essentially. And after we became friends, we'd sort of go and sit in bars, and uh, I sort of began to apprehend Kauri's love of the sagas of Iceland, you know, the medieval family stories of the first Viking settlers of Iceland. Um, and and he, I remember you saying at one point that I, these are actually the greatest stories ever written. And I thought, well, you know, he's an Icelander. He would say that, wouldn't he? But he's right. I think he's right. I've, I've since read them and reread the stories. And, and you, you hear them again and again, and you find something new in them all the time. They're an impossibly rich literary source. And it is, uh, Cary often said, this is quite right, this is, it's a major, it's a kind of a miracle that this tiny island with this tiny population right up in the Arctic Circle, in the middle of the North Atlantic, should give birth to one of the great story cultures, storytelling cultures of the world. And it's a bit, to me, it's a bit like the Beatles coming out of Liverpool, you know? How is it the Beatles have come out of that place? But of course, anywhere, anything can come out of anywhere, I think that's the lesson there, isn't it, really? If the right group of people there are to create a ferment, the, this, this incredible cultural uh, flourishing can come out of these amazing moments from the most seemingly unlikely places.
0: Um, we, uh, okay.
1: Sorry, this side of the room's hogging all the questions mm-hmm. and so uh, you might have to fight this side for the microphone. Yes, okay. yeah.
2: But Richard, who is the most fascinating person you've ever interviewed on Conversation?
1: Oh, I, I can't name that, I think, there's, a uh, great, uh, <laughs> let me think, I'm right uh, here, <laughs> it's a name that's coming to mind. Um, uh, no, I, I, I always think in terms of who is the most interesting person I've spoken to in the last month or two, that's, that's the way I think. Most recently I think, I've just recorded an interview which is going to go to where this week I think. With this extraordinary homicide detective called Ron Idles, which, um, which is just, he had the most amazing story. A, couple, uh, a month before that, I interviewed this amazing man called Gregory Smith, who's now an academic who was homeless for decades of his life and lived in a forest. And in the past, I've interviewed people like Jill Hicks who lost her legs in the London bombings of 2005 and can actually talk really poetically and, and, and vividly about what it's like to be standing next to a man carrying a bomb when that bomb goes off. I mean, But then other stories are just so small and funny and gentle and more fragile, they're not as epically intense as that. Um, so I don't know, it's like naming your favourite uh, children, so one is reluctant <laughs> to... <laughs> Um, you know, otherwise, on the drive back, you would be saying, so, why, am I your favourite? Have <laughs> I res- and, I, and, and then, aside from, uh, are we there yet? I'm not ready, I'm not ready to handle that from Gieselison on the drive home. I'm just going to go through that every person. interview you've ever done <laughs> and say,
2: is it that person?
1: Was it that person? <laughs> <laughs> Carrie's thought I should stop interviewing other people once I'd interviewed him. Yeah. So <laughs> he, he's, so, he's funny like that, it's funny, you know. Hello. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed... We actually stop sometimes, get out, not get out of the car because we just want those last couple of minutes before we go somewhere. <laughs> That's how sad we are. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I'm married to an unfortunate history buff as well, so he's sitting there going, oh, yeah, oh yeah." Mm. he's already bought the book, so it's OK. Um, Stand up and be proud, brother. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> it's OK. Yes. Don't, don't let yourself be put down like that. No. Um, <laughs> what languages and how did you get... The research for the book, because, as you say, a lot of it was just destroyed. And they, they went through England, they destroyed libraries, they destroyed all this stuff. How were you able to gather information? Did you have to go to China, to, you know, all oh, no. these other places? Oh, no. God, no. No, no, but, I mean, yeah. to get information for it. Um, well, there, there is actually plenty of history. Some periods, when we get to the... S- 6th century, there's tons of stuff, but then you hit the 7th, 8th, ninth. that period, there's a real Darth. there's only a couple of people. And then you have to rely on sources like from the sagas from the outside and other Arabic sources as well. Uh, I, I don't read, I don't have Latin, Greek, Turkish or Arabic, um, so I had to read all the primary sources in translation. Um, there's, huge wealth of stuff on the internet. Fordham University in the United States has this vast trove of information of uh, medieval documents in translation which was hugely helpful. I bought a lot of books off the internet. I uh, also, amazingly enough, the State Library of Queensland's got a trove of amazingly helpful books um, particularly on the fall of Constantinople, I was really surprised maybe uQ once had some kind of course in Byzantine studies that 's maybe still there or gone or whatever, but I, I was able to avail myself of some amazing resources even even locally it 's just a matter of i don 't know I just really enjoyed burrowing down into stuff and finding the a whole lot of primary documents in translation sadly that's but that 's what i that 's what I had to do um, but i didn 't have to travel f- beyond Um, Brisbane for any of that, to be honest. It was either all on the internet, I could buy the books and they'd be shipped to me or I could go to the State Library. It was wonderful.
2: How do you, Sophia?
1: I had the privilege of going there a few years ago,
0: (coughs) having taught it as an art teacher for years, out of pictures, out of books, but the experience of that building was absolutely
2: breathtaking.
0: It astonished me. I noticed that the old Early Christian murals, the the frescoes, were left intact in a lot of places, so that you can
1: see the history of the murals. Why do you think they did that? Uh, first of all, I completely share that feeling you had walking into the Hagia Sophia. It, it, I had. It's one of those beautiful things where you have such high expectations, and you go in, and even those high expectations are exceeded. I I write that at once I felt I was instantly in the most beautiful building in the world. I had that feeling. Many people have that feeling walking into the Hagia Sophia. You get that feeling of... I'm feeling it now too, even just remembering it, that kind of surge of blood to the head and that prickling at the back of the neck and a feeling of giddiness and joy. Happiness. Happiness. It's odd. It's it's so grand, and it it does this thing, I I write about this, it makes you feel, on the one hand, it makes you feel like you're a tiny insignificant speck in the scheme of things, and then another moment, it feels like a great big present made just for you, like a great building should do. Yes, those mosaics that are there on the wall, um, they're gradually more, more being uncovered, but very, very slowly. One of the great things the Ottoman Turks did was when they entered the Hagia Sophia, they turned it into a mosque, the Hagia Sophia they planted those minarets around it, which only enhanced its majesty, I think, just quietly, but they, they had a real problem. My understanding of this, once from one source, is that the Ottomans had a real problem with the mosaics because uh, the, the veneration of graven images is, like for Jewish people, um, a, a, a heresy for, for Muslims. But then many of the figures in those mosaics are holy figures to, to Islam, like Jesus, and and the Virgin Mary, and all these other figures. So what to do? They didn't want to desecrate it, so they plastered over it. They just covered them up. So there they are, kept beautifully intact for century after century after century, and they're being slowly uh, peeled back. More recently, they've uncovered those astonishing angels in the pendentives, the the sort of semi-curves, the cups that support that vast central dome. And I don't know if anyone's seen these angels at the top of the dome? They look like no angel you've ever seen before. They're disembodied faces with six wings, two blue wings shooting up the top, two at the side, and two below. And they look like weird beasts from Greek mythology. But really, they are the truest, um, truest depictions of angels as you get them from the book of Daniel in the, in the Bible. These are, these are actually the cherubim, the highest of the host of heaven. The angels we see now, the angels we think look like angels, you know, the ones with the long hair and the halo and the robes and the wings, that's the pagan goddess Nike. <laughs> oh, her of the shoes. Her of the shoes, yes, the pagan <laughs> goddess of victory and, and American footwear, yes. Uh, the story I got from that while I was in Rome from a classicist who told me this is the reason why angels look like that is because when the empire became Christianized in the uh, fourth century, uh, the, the wealthy wanted photos of themselves with, uh, sorry, art of themselves with angels. And so the local artist was saying, well, what do angels look like? And they said, well, they're these you know, holy creatures with wings. Well, I've got a template here for Nike. Will that do? Yep, bang it on. you see this when we... I I saw this with Joe when we went to the Imperial Forum in Rome, the Arch of Severus. There's an angel there holding a spear. And I I said to my guy, why is an angel on the Arch of Severus? This is 100 years before the Christianisation of the Empire. She said, that's not an angel. That is Nike. Have a look at what's on the end of her spear. It's the tunic of a Persian warrior. You know, Angels don't normally go around spearing people like that, do they? So so much of the pagan past seeped through into the Christian Roman medieval world and right to the present day. So the angel on your inspirational bookmark, eh, yeah, it's not a Christian angel. So look, I'm looking at the time here. I think we've got time for one more question, okay? So
0: we'll take this one, and uh, because they, they, they can't give short answers, so I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs>
2: sorry.
1: Uh, Richard, I think
0: um, part of the history is fascinating, but the other part of the story for me is your story with Joe. Thank you. And I felt that there was a part of me that wondered whether Joe might be with you this afternoon. (laughs) But could you just tell us a little bit about his response to the whole adventure?
1: Yeah, it was really lovely. It was everything I'd hoped for, to be honest. Um, I mean... A lot of people have, after the fact have said to me, oh, you're such a nice dad taking your son on this trip. I was really selfish. I, it, was just, it was about my pleasure, really. I sort of wanted to enjoy those things with my son, to see, to enjoy them vicariously through him. I'd been to Rome before. I hadn't been to Istanbul before, but I had been to Rome many times before. And to see the ancient and medieval world be suddenly made manifest in his eyes and to see the absolute delight that was there was just heavenly. It was just lovely. It was a shared... Pleasure that was the the pleasure I extracted from that was exponentially higher as a result. I've got all these photos of him and I took of him in the Hagia Sophia, and he's just beaming. He's just he's just beaming, and and it's so lovely because it accords with Procopius's original account of what it was like to walk in the Hagia Sophia for the first time. How people were naturally happy. It made them effervescent. Uh, people who'd been disputing walked out, sort of you know, arm in arm, feeling pleased about the world. It, it, um, and Joe had that response too. We were both made happy by being in this extraordinary place. And even the bits, I could tell where he was a bit bored, where I got distracted in Rome hearing um, this beautiful music coming out of an Eastern Rite church in Rome, that heavenly Byzantine music, you know, with this a chant, those kind of strange, atonal harmonies that move along. It was just bewitching. It wasn't really his cup of tea, you know. He's into the strokes and uh, Nirvana. So, um, but nonetheless, he's such a lovely guy. He was really patient with me while I sort of, while his old man lingered outside the church to hear the music seeping out. yeah, he was very good company and lovely to be with the whole time. He's now 17. He's now as tall as me. Um, and I haven't brought him on to because I'm going to respect his privacy by and large. He was only ever okay with me putting photos of him in the book because he looks so different now because he's now uh, as tall as me, like I say, and 17.
0: Well, we really are running out of time, Leslie. So I'd ask you please to put your hands together for yeah. Richard Fyder <laughs> and Carriga <the disastrous> Slacken.
1: <laughs> Thank you.